You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have a returning guest, Dr. Kim Kutch. Uh, he's a really cool guy. Uh, he is the owner of a company called Carry Free, C-A-R-I Free, Carry as in a cavity. Um, they make a series of toothpastes and mouthwashes and all that that seem to be, uh, in my estimation, at least far superior to what's out there. And we'll go into why and how his products work and everything. And he's a dentist. I uh, learned a lot from talking to him last time, so I wanted him to come back. So, uh, Kim, thanks for coming. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, for people that didn't get the first podcast, what um, what spurred your interest in dentistry however many years ago? <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've been reading this book called uh, The Last Arrow, and it talks about how so many of us in life don't ever really find our passion, right? And I'm reading this whole book, and I'm thinking, like, man, at age six, I knew I wanted to be a dentist. Um, Sitting in the dental chair, I was so fascinated by all of the equipment and the dentist and everything. And I had a lot of cavities as a kid, um, but because that was a long time ago. But I mean, I, I've always just wanted to be a dentist. I love helping people, and I think you know, um, I think the things you need to to be successful in life, you need to figure out what it is that you love, that you're passionate about, and you also have to figure out the things that you don't like. And, you know, so the things that to understand me as a person, I love helping people. And so I'm able to do that through my dentistry. And the thing that I dislike the most is when I'm trying to help somebody and it doesn't go, go right. It, you know, there's a problem. It doesn't go well. Um, and I think for me, that kind of consolidated with this whole model of, of cavities. You know, we were taught to drill and fill when I was in dental school and to a degree, <laughs> You know, dentists are still being educated that way. But 20 years into practice, I was frustrated by the fact that now all these patients of mine are friends and family, and I'm doing what I was taught in dental school, and they'd spent a lot of money on some expensive dentistry, and then five years later, we'd see it fail because they got new decay around it. And so for me, that was the, that's the thing I don't like. That was a frustration. And I thought, you know, what I was trying to do doesn't really work all that well, because if it did... You know, this expensive dentistry shouldn't fail like that because the patients were doing what I was asking them to do. You know, they were, you know, brushing their teeth, they were, you know, watching their diet and what have you, and yet they were still getting cavities. And I thought, you know what? I really don't understand this disease. I mean, I know how to drill and fill like as good as anybody in the world. I mean, American dentists are so well trained at restorative techniques and our materials. We're literally the, I, I would, say we're the best in the world at that. But by and large, the education we get on this disease itself that we're repairing the, the effects from, we don't really have a, 
a big grasp on the disease itself and, and what causes those cavities. Um, yeah. So what um, I've read, I've been reading a lot about the oral microbiome. So I figured that yeah. plays a major role. But you know, in your estimation and your knowledge now, like what causes cavities or Maybe that's not the right way to look at it. What causes the mouth to experience gingivitis or cavities or plaque or all the things that happen to it? Yeah, yeah. So, so Richard, I mean, the thing is, it all goes back to pH in the mouth. And so one of the things that we started identifying, we started looking at, um, you know, dental caries. That's the name of the disease that causes cavities. We started looking at that as a whole person disease, not just a bunch of holes in, in somebody's teeth but rather than a disease that was causing those holes. And we were looking at the end effect of that disease. So what we, we backed up to look at, I really wanted to understand what's driving, what's causing that disease in the first place. And so I started just digging through our scientific literature, and this is 20 years ago. And uh, at that time, you know, was fortunate enough to be introduced to Dr. John Featherstone at UCSF, uh, Dr. Doug Young at, at University of Pacific, and Dr. John Coyce in Seattle. And those people really mentored me on my journey through trying to understand this disease and what it boils down to, um, and Dr. Philip Marsh from Leeds University in the UK, what it really boils down to is pH and that microbiome that you're talking about, uh, those bacteria help in a healthy mouth help maintain a healthy balance. Every time you eat, your mouth becomes acidic. And it doesn't matter what you eat. I mean, the digestive process starts kind of in the mouth. And so the, the, the microbes that we have in the mouth start to help us digest our food. We literally wouldn't survive without them. But in the process of the pH dropping and becoming more acidic, and becoming more acidic, um, you start to lose mineral out of the teeth itself. And the other thing that happens is you have longer periods of acidic episodes, and there's reasons that cause that, and I'll share that with you. But then it changes the microbiome. So instead of having a healthy group of microbes, what you've got is pre predominantly microbes that thrive in an acidic environment, and then they perpetuate that acidic environment. And pretty soon, your, your tooth dissolves to the point where you've got a hole in it. Now you've got a cavity. Some of those microbes invade the teeth. Mm -hmm. So that's really the cause of um, what starts that whole process. So it's really a function of the pH in the mouth. And then you've got microbes in a healthy mouth. You have microbes in the biofilm, the microbiome itself, that actually help raise the pH. And then your body starts um, releasing all this saliva. And the saliva that comes out when you start eating, the stimulated saliva is very alkaline. And so it's trying to protect your teeth immediately as well. So you've got this whole process that happens and as long as it stays in balance, we're healthy and nobody gets any tooth decay. The problem is when it's out of balance and either you don't have enough saliva, which I think is probably the number one cause of cavities in the United States today, and we'll talk about that. Um, number two, you're just eating too frequently or you know the person's eating too much sugar, which causes a rapid uh, decrease in the pH and, or let's say a rapid increase in acidity in the mouth. Um, and then, you know, being able to control that plaque level every day by brushing and flossing and cleaning your teeth, plaque removal, you know, reduce the amount of kind of the oral microbiome kind of hitting the reset button every day on that. Uh, those are the, you know, the major drivers for the balance of this pH in the mouth. And then, you know, the last one is genetics. And that's kind of been a wild card for us, you know, for the last nine years. And we're starting to kind of get a grip and kind of understand that a little better. But that's Really, at the end of the day, 
you have all these risk factors and things that play a role in the balance of mouth. But at the end of the day, it's all about the pH because the pH. Comes, yeah, so, yep. Quick question here. I might have a story on the genetic side. Yeah. I, I recently went to the dentist. Mine's not like, you know, they're okay. But um, I guess I'm one of those people that never gets cavities. And so I didn't go to the dentist for a while. And right. The, the assistant told me, she said that she noticed that people that don't get cavities tend to accumulate a lot of plaque. But people that get cavities may not accumulate much plaque, but they get lots of cavities. So she said there seems to be a trade-off, and she didn't know why. Is that in your experience? You know, Richard, one thing I would say that I, that we all see pretty commonly that we really haven't understood completely either is that people that get a lot of uh, cavities don't tend to have gum disease. And the people that really suffer from gum disease don't tend to get a lot of cavities. It's very – it's not – totally rare, but it, it's kind of unusual when I see somebody that has severe gum disease and periodontal disease and then also severe tooth decay at the same time. So you tend to fall kind of into one camp or the other, and some of that may be explained by genetics or certainly by your environment, but um, I would tell you that some people develop a real thick plaque, you know, heavy amount of plaque on their teeth, um, and they don't necessarily tend to have a lot of cavities. We see that a lot, particularly in teenagers, particularly particularly if they're going through orthodontic treatment, we'll see these kids come in that just have this thick plaque on their teeth and yet we clean it off and they don't have any decay underneath it. And then we see if you've got the wrong microbes, they don't, it doesn't have to be a lot of plaque. It's just if you have the wrong microbes, um, those acid-producing, acid-loving microbes, um, you can have a fairly thin plaque on your teeth and boy, it destroys the teeth in a hurry. So it's really not a, necessarily about the plaque level as it is which bacteria are present, but even more importantly, what are the bacteria and the microbes that are present doing? Are they producing acid and creating an acidic environment? So that's really, so you're lucky. I mean, you're fortunate you've got a healthy oral microbiome in your mouth. And as long as yeah, you yeah. don't do anything too extreme, you're going to stay healthy. Yeah, you know, my, my wife's jealous because she's the opposite. It's <laughs> like no cavities my whole life. And you know, she's like brushes her teeth till they fall off. And so... I, you know, I, I had the same, Richard, I had the same experience as a kid. My sister had very few cavities. And I mean, every time we go to the dentist, I'd have like six cavities. And my sister would have like none or maybe one. And that was very frustrating as a child because it seemed like this is not fair. We're in the same home. We have the same parents. We're eating the same food. I, I probably brushed my teeth and took better care of them than she did. She never got any decay. And yet it seemed like every time I went, I had... I had um, a lot of cavities, and I look back now, I understand exactly what was going on, and it was genetic. So let's, let's go back to the pH. So yep. what is the pH of a mouth with no food in it, and what does it go to when you eat, and then how fast does it return to normal? Um, you know, in general terms, I mean, this is going to vary for everybody, but in general terms, um, your resting saliva has a pH of about 6.5. So neutral is 7. Anything less than seven is acidic and it's a logarithmic scale. And anything greater than seven is then alkaline or you know less acidic. So when you have a mouth at rest, typically you have a pH just slightly below neutral. It's about 6.75. Now, interestingly, the enamel doesn't start to break down until, a pH, until it gets to a pH of 5.5. That's kind of, a, again, a, these numbers vary a little bit, but that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Now, if you've got enamel that's been exposed to a lot of fluoride, that doesn't that doesn't start break down, breaking down until about a pH of 4.5. So the advantage of fluoride is it helps strengthen the enamel 
and makes it more resistant to that acid breakdown. Uh, on the other side of the coin, so as you start to eat, you know, the pH in your mouth could drop down as low as three, you know, 3.5. A lot of the foods that we eat influence that as well, like a lot of the coffee has a pH of 3.5. So you put that in your mouth immediately, it's gonna, you know, drop the pH in your mouth. Um, and on the flip side of that, stimulated saliva has a pH somewhere between eight and nine. So immediately your body is trying to overcompensate, you know, for that. It's producing the saliva that's very alkaline to try and help drive the pH back up. Now, in a healthy mouth, that, you know, it takes about 30 minutes or so for that to kind of go back to neutral after you eat. So it, it takes a little bit of time. And then the challenge becomes like for people that don't have enough saliva. And that is typically caused by medications. And we know that like 70% of all Americans across every age demographic take at least one prescription medication a day. You know, 55% take two or more and, you know, um, and 25% take five or more. And the most common side effect of all of our prescription medications, the number one side effect is dry mouth. So if you reduce the amount of saliva, suddenly your body can't protect the teeth when every time you eat. So your eating episodes become more and more critical for you. So if you have three you know, regular balanced meals a day of whole foods and you're doing all the right things, that's great. If you just snack twice during the day, that mouth may take an hour or even two hours to recover back to because you don't have as much saliva and if you snack it drops the pH immediately again and pretty soon you're spending more time in that acidic zone which is demineralizing or you know breaking the teeth down from the surface than you are spending in a healthy time where you know you've got the mineral going back into the teeth and keeping them whole so it's, it's kind of this delicate balance that goes on in the mouth the other thing about the saliva that's really important is that your saliva is super saturated with the little building blocks of enamel. They're nanoparticle size, but that hydroxyapatite mineral, 20 nanometer particle size, it's like the, if you could think of a, of a tooth that is built out of little Lego blocks, those are the little miniature Lego blocks that the enamel forms from. And so as you eat and it gets acidic, those little Lego blocks come off the surface of the enamel and then when the saliva um, and, the other, and some of the microbes in the mouth start to drive the pH back up, those little uh, Lego blocks go right back in the enamel reform. So that's kind of going on all day long. Every time you eat or you or drink something, you know, in the mouth, those are the kind of things that happen. So you got to have. Where, where is the um? Where is the source of the saliva? Oh, sorry, where's the source of the hydroxyapatite, the building block of the enamel? Is it inside the tooth coming out, or is it in saliva? Okay, so you so the teeth are built out of that, but then the source for it. The saliva itself is super saturated with those little particles of mineral. So your body is maintaining these teeth by keeping them bathed like 24 hours a day in a super saturated solution of the, of the exact mineral that they're made out of. So they stay mineralized and stay healthy. So the saliva is probably the biggest protective factor we've got in the body. It's nature's way to protect your teeth. And as soon as you start cutting you know, the amount of saliva that you have available, um, that throws things out of whack in a hurry. What if you did a tongue twister of Sally sells super salivated saliva by the seashore? <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be a tough one. But it's uh, okay. you know, so it, so it's really you look at all these different risk factors and you know it becomes kind of a delicate balance. But the one thing I started doing about 20 years ago then was I took uh, you know 
health questionnaires, which we call you know risk assessment forms, and we had the patients start to self-identify. Here's my risk factors, you know, and we have a, a series of about eight questions, and there and it's pretty simple. And what I found for most people that were having a lot of tooth decay, they weren't doing a million things wrong. They were just doing maybe one or two things wrong that was putting them at greater risk that was changing you know driving this disease for them and just being able to identify that help them understand it gives them the opportunity to then correct it for themselves and you know once you get it corrected you get back in balance you stop having decays it's not rocket science you know and, and it all comes down it, i'm going to you know probably say this over and over today but it's all about the ph at the end of the day this is a disease of ph so it's being aware of what causes your um, acidic episodes and what your risk is and you know with those episodes and then how to get back to health so what if you did a protocol of after each meal you um you know gargled or rinsed with uh, some high ph water and then drank some you know to pass away your mouth between each meal you know that's a great idea i mean if you're particularly if you're short on saliva um for somebody after they eat you know to rinse with uh, an alkaline water even neutral water i mean tap water typically tap water is about as a ph of about 7.5 in most communities has some fluoride in it. Um, that's much better than, you have to be real careful about half of the bottled waters on the market have a pH of right around four. So they're quite acidic. So, um, and See, I always you told me that, why is that? You told me last time, but just for uh, this. It's about, I, I believe it's about shelf life stability because they take the chlorine and everything else out of this water. And then to keep it shelf life stable without having things grow in it, they acidify it. And, you know, so that's, it's all about shelf life. And a lot of those are made by this soda manufacturers. And, you know, most of your sodas have a pH of somewhere around 3.5 to 4. So it's, it's pretty consistent. But so you just have to be careful, you know, what you're rinsing. I always tell patients rinse the water, but I always qualify. The best, fastest, easiest, most convenient, cheapest thing to do is rinse with tap water. If you want to rinse with alkaline water, I mean, even better yet. So, because um, that's what your saliva, your, your, you're basically trying to replace the activity that your saliva is responsible for. And so, you know, rinse with water. One of the mistakes that people make, and it, it's kind of crazy because it, it seems backwards, but we were always taught, you know, you eat and then you brush your teeth. And a lot of our toothpaste that are on the market today are, number one, they're acidic and they're very abrasive. Um, particularly the whitening toothpaste have a real high abrasive level. Um, so if you eat, and then you know that these little building blocks have kind of out of the surface of the enamel. And, and then you brush right away before they have an opportunity to recover and go back into the enamel. If you, if you brush those away, you literally, like right away, I've seen patients that have all but, you know, brushed all of the enamel off their teeth. So you kind of, you're better off to brush your teeth first and then eat. If you're going to brush like two or three times a day, brush before you eat. Or, if you, or brush, at least wait 30 minutes for the, the uh, enamel to recover before you brush your teeth. So you're not brushing away all those nano, nanoparticles of, of mineral. Oh, well, so the act of brushing is actually, so it's not good for your mouth if it's after meals. And it's not good for your mouth if it's done too strenuously or too often. So yeah. how can you make, is that, is that why you created your toothpaste and your mouthwash to make brushing yeah, so, a positive event? Yeah, yeah. So what we did, we reduced actually the abrasivity level of our toothpaste is very low um, because you don't really need that much abrasive. You basically all that's doing is just keeping the stains, you know, like coffee, cigarette, you know, tea, you know, those kind of stains off your teeth. Um, so you just need enough to keep your teeth from staining. 
but you, you really don't want to take more of the biofilm. If it's healthy, you don't want to take it off the teeth. And the pH then is really important. So we created an alkaline uh, system so that the pH of our products runs from about 8 to 10.5. The gel has a, a pH of 9.0. So we're trying to like help be protective in that pH environment to help retrain the biofilm to become more balanced or more um, healthy, as you would say. So it's really that our whole system is built around pH. What if we did a, a thought experiment? If I compared, um, you know, not brushing my teeth for a month, but after each meal, like rinsing and gargling with alkaline water versus like brushing my teeth twice a day with normal toothpaste and normal water and everything and, you know, brushing them hard, I guess like most people do, but not using alkaline water. Um, that, that would be an interesting experiment. <laughs> um, would prefer you to see your brush with a, uh, just brush with an alkaline water, you know? Um, just kind of reduce the overall plaque level, but keeping everything kind of alkaline, helping train the, the biofilm to behave and behave uh, in a healthy manner and maybe even select for, you know, a better assortment of microbes in the microbiome there that are going to um, help keep the mouth protected. Um, better than using a, a high abrasive, acidic, any kind of oral healthcare product. So that's, that's, that's one of the challenges that we have. Well, I, I use, you know, for listeners, I use the, the, your toothpaste and stuff. I don't use the mouthwash, but I use the toothpaste. Yeah. And I noticed that when I use it, at the end, my teeth actually feel cleaner. They don't feel like they have any film on them. Right. I've been using it for a few months now, and it seems to, I don't know, I seem to be accumulating, like, less plaque, and it seems to be working, and my teeth are just better off. So that's just what I yeah. It's, um, you know, I always tell people, uh, particularly because I, I teach a lot of dentists. I teach in some dental schools and I, and I teach, you know, dental hygiene programs and what have you. And I always hand them the gel and I say, this is for your patients, but I want you to start by using it yourself. Because the first thing you'll notice takes about four or five days, but you'll wake up like the fifth morning or so and your teeth will be clean when you wake up. There's a healthy microbiome, a healthy biofilm on the teeth is very thin. And so they're going to feel very clean. And the other thing is it doesn't build up rapidly, that healthy biofilm, so they stay clean throughout the day. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Richard, but the one thing that, you know, that I appreciate, the one thing that I first noticed about, the, you know, these products was that for me personally, um, I woke up in the morning, you know, my teeth are clean, and then they stay clean throughout the day. It was like, it was the first time in my life I'd ever experienced something like that. And I, and I, I hear that pretty consistently from people that use the products are like, yeah, gosh, my teeth, they feel so much cleaner after mm -hmm. I brush with, with the gel. Um, it works so much better. And then my teeth stay clean and they're easier to keep clean. And then I go in for my checkup and it seems like I have less plaque buildup or I have less sand on my teeth. Um, so, and I've noticed that on my own mouth as well. So it's been, uh, it's been kind of an interesting journey, but we're excited about that because it, it helps people. And again, what you need to know about me is my passion in life is being able to help you. Well, you, you mentioned last time a study, I think, done in Australia with children's teeth. Can you uh, restate what you said last time? Yeah, so we did um, So we did a study on children in Townsville. Uh, it's in Queensland, Australia. You know, it's very rural and a, kind of a poorer section of Australia. And so these two grade schools um, that we included in the study, both of these schools were very high risk for tooth decay. So all these kids, and so these were kids in grade school, you know, from first to sixth grade, 
um, we would call them mixed dentition. They still had some baby teeth, they had new permanent teeth coming in. And these kids were developing on average two new cavities per kid per school year, you know, which is a lot of decay. And so we tested um, our one rinse um, that has a pH of 8.0, which we recommend just for people in general to use um, against our treatment rinse, which has a pH of 10.5. And it's really designed as an antimicrobial type rinse, as well as, you know, cavity protection. And in the one group, and so they rinsed, they had a supervised rinse at school for 30 seconds. They were in school for four days a week, and this was like nine months out of the year. So it's a fairly limited protocol. That's all we did in the study. We didn't teach them anything else. We didn't teach them how to brush. We didn't talk about diet. All we did was we gave them a supervised rinse, you know, once a day at school. And the kids with our over-the-counter rinse um, reduced their decay rate by about 30%. And the kids in the um, treatment rinse group uh, reduced their decay rate by 73%, I mean, just by using that rinse. And that was over a period of two years. And I, I can't quote anything else in the scientific literature, any study with anything that got those kind of results. So, um, yeah, that's that's really significant to be able to reduce your decay rate by, you know, 73% just by using a rinse. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, we're pretty happy. Have you noticed that um, that having your rinse changes your perception of taste? Like, have you ever tried it right before a meal or just alkaline water and see how that affects the taste of the meal? You know, it's interesting because our our products don't have a really strong minted flavor or any of the flavoring that we use. We use some grape and we use some citrus, and um, but, they're, but they're not over, they, they don't have a real strong flavor with it. We don't put a lot of that in the product. And so it doesn't, attend, doesn't tend to affect your taste perception. So you could... Uh, for instance, brush your teeth and go buy your Starbucks, you know, your $7 cup of coffee and not have the taste influenced by that, whatever you use to just brush your teeth with. In fact, I have, I have a dentist researcher who uh, buys product pretty regularly and he tells me, and what I love about your product the most is on Saturday morning when I go for my Starbucks, he goes, it's my big treat, you know, the week I go get my Starbucks and it, it doesn't, your, your product, I can brush my teeth and it doesn't uh, change the taste of my Starbucks. And good. yeah, yeah, so it is good. It's something, I, something we hadn't ever really even thought about, but, um, but yeah, it, it, I, I would agree with him. It doesn't change your taste. Yeah, well, since pH is such a big deal, I'm sure, you know, again, it modulates many things in the mouth, perception of taste and just all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, okay, so cavities happen, the, the science is that what, the um, the bacteria that are acid-loving, I guess, predominate in the mouth, and then they start yep. attacking, they start what, eating the hydroxyapatite that constitutes the tooth? Yep. And what do they make it into? What do they metabolize it into? Oh, it just, actually, so what happens, it just comes, they don't metabolize it itself. It just, because of the pH, it just starts to break down and comes out of the tooth. We, we oh, just so we use terms like dissolve, but then you swallow it, you know, basically it's gone. Um, so we, we, we use terms like it dissolves, you know, out of the teeth, but it really, minerals don't really behave that way in, in nature. So you actually have these little um, nanoparticle blocks of this mineral that come out in a piece of these little nanoparticles of pieces come out. So it's not like, like you would think of an ice cube melting. It's more like 
as little tiny chunks of the ice cube, you know, came out. And so it kind of disassembled, I think is a better, um, maybe a better term for this is like, you know, the enamel kind of disassembles. Now, once the enamels disassemble to the point that there's a hole there, the bacteria can, or the bacteria and the other microbes uh, can invade the tooth. Now, so you've got the shell of the tooth is enamel, but the interior of the tooth is called dentin, and it's about 60% protein. A lot of these bacteria and these microbes can actually directly digest the protein that's inside of the dentin. So once the decay gets inside of the tooth, a lot of times it happens fairly rapidly because now they've got something that they've got a food source for themselves and they start to actually digest it and break down the, the protein that's on the inside of the tooth. Interesting. Okay. So in an ideal situation, if you have, I don't know, I'm just making this up, one millimeter of enamel, that'll get, you know, burned back or dissolved back to a half millimeter, then restored, then back and restored, back and restored. So you never go through all the virgin enamel and get to the dentin. Yep. But I guess someone with a bad diet, they're ever so slow. It just keeps going. Losing ground, right? Sitting. Yeah, it just keeps, it just definitely keeps losing ground, right? Yeah, so you're right. It's on a, it happens really on a, a nanometer scale, not really like a, a half a millimeter. You have about a millimeter to two millimeters of enamel um, on the surface of the tooth, depending upon which surface of the tooth. Um, and, but you're only losing just right at the surface. But if you just keep losing it in an area, um, eventually you'll get all the way through the enamel and that whole millimeter all the way through, and then you've got a hole that's down into the dent. And once you've got a hole in the surface of the tooth, we, we really need to go back in and put a filling in the tooth. We need to restore that. But until, until you have the hole on the surface, like you can have some mineral loss out of that enamel, and it can be, start to be kind of porous and poorly constructed as it disassembles. But unless you have an actual hole in the surface, you don't need to put filling in it. So we have an opportunity to like reassemble that enamel, kind of remineralize it, and um, and and help and help the, the that site repair itself. So that's part of our goal is to be able to like do this non-surgically and you know identify it early enough, help the patient so that they can stay healthy and they don't end up with actual cavities. Well, it seems like if you again you had a mouthwash whose job was solely to passivate the mouth and restore enamel, you know, and you gargled with it and swished for you know, a minute or two minutes every day. Yeah. How yeah. much could how much could that help you to close holes or to restore the enamel in your teeth? Well, we know it works, right? So I don't know that we have an exact. Uh, you know, we haven't done research to the point of if you use this quantity for this amount of time, you know, over this period of time, uh, it's going to re repair you know this depth of a lesion in the enamel. But I, I can tell you that um, it it does work. I mean, we see it clinically. We know that in scientific studies, um, you can remineralize a lesion, a white spot lesion that's uh, 200, 200 microns, you know, which is two tenths of a millimeter. You know, we can completely make that disappear. Lesions that are deeper than that, we can at least remineralize the surface of the enamel and make it stronger so that the lesion doesn't continue to go, you know, continue to progress down underneath the surface. So, yeah, yeah either way. Either way, you're going to protect that surface of the enamel and make it stronger and make it more resistant to having a cavity. What about uh, mouth breathers versus nose breathers? Have you seen any difference? Or, you know, as people age, um, does their saliva go down significantly and this accelerates? Like, you know, those two scenarios, what have you seen? Yeah. So, number, yeah. So number one, I mean, as we age, 
um, all of our <laughs> all of our organ systems don't work as well as they did when we were younger. And so that's a natural part of the aging process is that you have less saliva. Um, I think one of the challenges we've got today in America is not only are people aging and they have less saliva, but as we age, we tend to take more medications for our diabetes and heart disease and blood pressure and what have you. Mm. It kind of compounds that problem because of the fact that now you've got less saliva naturally, and now we've driven that even worse because you've got less, even less saliva because of um, the medication and the dry, you know, the side effect from your medication and the dry mouth. So that that's just a huge challenge for us. And again. 70% of all Americans, and now we're talking about age six months, um, you know, you look at allergies in children today, um, asthma, and they're using antihistamines, that, which again, cause dry mouth, it's one of the side effects, and GERD is an issue for kids. So, you know, it's a challenge for all of us, but particularly it's a challenge, I think, as the older we get, the more likely we're going to have other systemic disease um, issues that we're probably going to be taking more prescription medications for. Mouth breathing, on the other hand, is a whole other topic. And I think airway issues in dentistry, um, that's really an evolving science in the last, I would say, about five years. And of course, I've gotten involved with a lot of the leaders, thought leaders in um, airway you know, and, and dental issues because of the tooth decay aspect of that. But certainly, yeah, if your mouth is open during the night, um, your mouth is going to dry out there as well. And, and again, you don't have as much saliva available to protect the teeth. I haven't seen those people per se. We haven't seen that as, as a, uh, an isolated risk for tooth decay, but certainly it's something that's not helping you. Okay. Yep. And um, for listeners, with your eyes, let's go over four, five, six common things that people do to their teeth, you know, in an attempt to yeah. improve them. And, and what, you know, with your knowledge, what does it do? Like tooth whitening, uh, braces, it's, you know, like tell me some of the common things you see people do that unintentionally hurts their teeth. Um, it, it, it's more lifestyle probably than anything else. Like, um, you know, certainly the, the tooth whitening is, is safe. You know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to over whiten your teeth. Um, if you're using some kind of a peroxide gel, or a, a white strip, or one of those types of professional whitening products that are specifically designed just for tooth whitening. Um, that's a very safe procedure. We've been using bleach in dentistry back, dating back to the 1860s. You know, um, so it's not like um, that's going to create a lot of issues for you. And and one of the side effects of that bleaching product is that most of them are quite alkaline. So. That's kind of always helps drive that biofilm in the right direction, right? The challenge for us is that a lot of um, like toothpaste are described as whitening. They're whitening toothpaste, and a lot of them have really high abrasivity levels. And so I always tell patients, you know, you got to be really careful. Maybe it's okay to use a product that has that high of an abrasivity like once a week or, you know, once a month, but it's not something that you would appropriately, would be good for you to use like three times a day. I see so much damage to enamel and people, I think they're just over, um, I think the, I think that in that industry that we have a tendency to use more and more abrasive and it, yeah, it makes your teeth wider and gets the stains off, but at the same point, what cost to the enamel. And so I see people, I see patients that um, develop the little notches along the roots. And I can't help but think that a lot of that notching is caused by 
a really abrasive toothpaste and they're kind of just scrubbing their teeth like linearly back and forth, which we all have kind of a more of a, it's easier to brush your teeth back and forth than it is kind of in a circular motion, which we should be doing. Um, so that's, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I see. And, and you end up with these deep notches in your roots. And if you're getting those as a patient, um, you know, you don't want to get too deep. Uh, otherwise, because you got the nerve is below the surface there at some point, and you really don't want to damage your tooth that way. And so we end up placing a lot of restorations. I, I sound, when I'm in practice, I sound like a broken record, you know, telling people to stay away from these really abrasive toothpaste. Um, and, and if you want to use them, just be careful in, in how often you use them. But um, yeah. so that's a challenge. I think other lifestyle stuff is certainly sugar in the American diet is huge. And that, and that again, that's driving that acidic episode, making it worse because sugar, sugar is so rapidly um, digested by your oral you know, microbiome and it produces acid immediately um, that you have to be really careful. And on average, Americans, we're, we're consuming 23 teaspoons of sugar per day. And if we look at the well, uh, the World Health Organization recommends that for us to, to have a healthy diet, that we should have no more than 10% of our caloric intake should come from sugar. Uh, which so now we're down to like a teaspoon or so a day and they say and if we were really being honest we really shouldn't have our best goal would be no more than five percent of our caloric intake coming from sugar well now you're down to like a half a teaspoon and then they they go further to say and if we were really 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 being honest it should be no more than like three percent which is like you know a third of a teaspoon and if you go and I always tell patients I, I carry these in my briefcase you know, to, to pass around when I'm teaching classes, but to look at in a baggie, 23 teaspoons of sugar, and then look in another baggie that has like, you know, less than a half a teaspoon of sugar. Here's what we are eating. And here's what we ideally should be eating. I mean, it's shocking. And then you start reading labels and it's hard to, I mean, it's hard in our Western diet within our society. It's hard to avoid sugar. I mean, they, it's addictive. They put it in everything. And a lot of it's hidden. Like if you could see how much sugar was in a, a can of Coke, a can of soda, let's not pick on Coke because they're, you know, soda, soda. If you could look at, you know, how much sugar is in that can of soda or that 16th ounce soda or that 32 ounce big gulp, uh, if you could see exactly how much sugar was in it, you might think twice about drinking it because those are just empty calories, which aren't helping your teeth. But as soon as they get past your teeth, you know, you know, it's a direct driver for obesity, hypertension. Um, coronary artery disease and cancer. So, you know, we've got these other systemic conditions, you know, that follow right behind the mouth as well. So that's, I well, think uh, those are two of the yeah. biggest lifestyle things I, I think I see. This might be my perception, but now that I don't use the normal toothpaste, like they taste like they have a lot of sugar in them. So it seems yeah. like toothpaste adds sugar too, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head if there is, if and how much sugar, what kind of sweeteners. I think they tend to have maybe more artificial sweeteners, you know, kind of on average, but they tend to be quite sweet, quite strongly flavored and quite sweet. Um, that would be my perception as well. What's, um, is there any studies on the residence time of food in your mouth? I mean, you know, you're chewing it and you swallow it, so it's probably five to 10 seconds, but the stuff that's left behind. Is there any studies on the residence time of that food that's left on your teeth and how much and you know how fast it gets cleaned out by the body? You know, you asked some really, you know, I really enjoy your podcast. I have to tell you this. You, you, yeah, asked, you. you, you asked some really interesting questions. Things that I, I think, 
within the profession, we don't tend to ask ourselves, because that seems like that would be a really obvious question. Well, how long is the food on your teeth and what cause, you know, what effect does that have? And after you eat, if some of it's left on your teeth, what kind of effect does that have? I can't, I'm sitting here, you know, racking my brain. I can't think of a single study that I have read uh, that addressed that exact question. And yet it seems kind of obvious that's something we should consider. It would be, I'm just sitting, thinking also about study design. It would be really hard to design a clinical study around that, you know, trying to measure that. But, uh, but certainly it makes sense that the longer you have the exposure of the food on your teeth, the, the, the longer the acidic episode is going to be. And the, the sooner you can get your mouth, you know, you kind of flush that and get the food out of there, the sooner your mouth has an opportunity to like recover. So, okay. Yeah. yeah I was just imagining like flossing too. If I eat like a rib, you know, and a piece of rib gets stuck between my teeth, it just seems like, you know, an area of continual ongoing acidity. Uh, the sooner and the you, local uh, environment it creates is like absolutely. Kind of anaerobic too, you know. Yeah, yeah. The sooner, the sooner you get that, you know, the sooner you use the floss and the tooth that can get that piece of meat out of there, the better. Although, you know, the meat's not going to be digested as quickly as, say, you're eating a milk dud, you know, some sticky piece of candy, and that and that's stuck in between your teeth, and it was there for like say hours before it dissolved. You know, that would have the opportunity to create a much worse effect than maybe a, a little piece of meat. That's true. So what? What's, how has your practice changed? You know, you don't recommend regular toothpaste. You obviously, you know, yours is better formulated. That makes sense. But what's, what else has changed in your advice to people? Um, I think that the biggest thing, I mean, it's just that rather than sitting down and looking at a patient's mouth and trying to figure out how many cavities they have and how we're going to restore them, I sit down and look at them. And, you know, first question I want to know is if you have cavities, why do you have cavities? So rather than, and we always jump from A to Z. I mean, and this is how we're trained. You know, as dentists, you see a hole. I'm already thinking about how I'm going to fix it, right? Um, and and instead, we got to we have to step back and, and ask ourselves, why is there a hole there, right? Because a healthy person wouldn't have that. We need to stop back and instead of looking at that surface of the tooth, we need to step back and look at the whole person. Like this is a a whole person disease. So what about this person is causing that hole in that tooth? Because if we can figure out what that is. That's how I can the best help that person, you know, get healthy again. If all I do is fill the hole, which is what I was trained to do, and, you know, tell them you need to brush and floss, or, you know, you keep getting cavities, well, you're not doing that well enough, or you're eating too much sugar, or, you know, you need more fluoride, or we, we would throw these things out there. But, you know, while it's simple, it, 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 you have to take a little deeper look at it than that. So, you know, the question I ask now is, you know, why? Why does your tooth look that way? Why are you getting decay? And Because if we can figure that out, I can help you stop getting cavities. That's the greatest help that I provide for you. So I've, I, I would tell you, how's my practice changed? I've been doing that for the last 20 years. And it's, it's a, gosh, it's such an emotional um, change. It's such an emotional experience for people to stop getting tooth decay, particularly the people that have a lot of serious tooth decay, or maybe at the risk of losing their teeth, you know, that they have that much severe disease. And so that's such an emotional journey that um, you really develop uh, a, a much deeper relationship with people, right? So it's not like I'm their dentist, like, you, you know, it's, it's more like I'm kind of their health coach and we're kind of on a journey together. And so it's changed, I think, my level of satisfaction and in my practice itself, like I feel so much more emotionally rewarded 
because I like to help people and because now I am truly helping people uh, in addition to just, you know, creating a pretty smile for them. I'm also helping them create a healthy future for themselves. And so I think for me, that's a lot more rewarding. And like I say, it just deepens, deepens the relationship that I have with the patients. So it's been wonderful. And I would tell you this, I have more and more patients having fewer and fewer cavities, which is like, that, that was why I went into, dentist, into dentistry in the first place. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, if you look at things through the lens, I don't know if you believe this, that, you know, uh, your mouth can be in a constant low inflammation state or, you know, cavities and mouth disease is an inflammatory state. You know, how often should people get their teeth cleaned? I know it depends on the person, but what's like an ideal I mean, schedule? You know, it, so I, there, there is no ideal schedule. And, and one thing that um, I think we're starting to look at, and this has been a major movement in medicine in the last 10 years, and, and I'm kind of trying to advance this concept in dentistry, but, you know, looking at P4 medicine, and, you know, P4 medicine is it's predictive, it's preventive, it's personalized and it's participatory. So if you kind of look at tooth decay, uh, I want to be able to predict with, you know, looking at your risk factors, you know, are you at risk for decay or not? Um, I, want it to, I want to be preventive so that I can look at if, say, you've got the disease, say you've got some tooth decay, I want to know how we can help prevent any future decay. And then I'm going to personalize whatever recommendation we have based on your exact history and your personal makeup and your environmental lifestyle, et cetera. And then the participatory part is let, helping me coach you so that you know what to do, how to make those changes for yourself. Um, so, you know, taking a look at that, adding that kind of then taking a look at that into dentistry, that's kind of how we approach, you know, tooth decay now. What was your question, Richard? I think I got something. Oh, well, yeah, I was going to ask what, what's the, uh, okay, so, do you think of cavities and mouth disease as like a low level of inflammation, a persistent oh, low right. level? Yeah, yeah. And you were asking about you were asking about the ideal schedule to get your teeth cleaned, right? Right. So, so for that person that's at very low risk, they don't have any tooth decay, and, and they don't have any gum disease, or you know, they're not developing any bone loss around their teeth. You know, once a year would be the ideal schedule for them. Now, if you were moderate risk for tooth decay which means that you've got some risk factors, but you really don't have any cavities, a better schedule would be twice a year. And then if, you know, it's just so that we get an opportunity to see you a couple times a year because cavities develop fast and somebody that's got a lot of risk for the disease. And literally in a six month span of time, you could, I've seen people have enough decay that, that they, they came out of nowhere, they lost a tooth within six to nine months. So we kind of like to see those people at least twice a year. And if you've got a, a kind of a severe history of tooth decay, the best schedule would be to see you every three months so that we can monitor, we can help you, you know, with coaching with your progress on whatever lifestyle changes you're trying to make. Um, and you know, I can't, we can't, I can't change your DNA. I can't take you off any medications that you're taking for other systemic illnesses. So I really need to be as proactive as I can be to make sure that we help you avoid any tooth decay. So for that patient, it's like every three months. So the answer to the question is somewhere between once a year and four times a year, but it really depends on the person. Now, you kind of overlay that with, well, then we also have gum disease to deal with. And if you are low risk for gum disease, which means you don't have any inflammation around your gum tissue and you're healthy, um, once a year is adequate. 
you know, if you get a little bit of inflammation or a little bleeding of your gums here or there, maybe twice a year is, is recommended. And if you have, you know, a more advanced or aggressive form of gum disease, we again should be seeing you like every three, uh, every three months to clean your teeth and clean your gums, the roots of your teeth. That's the best preventive measure in all of our scientific literature is cleaning your teeth like four times a year. So I think you're starting to see, rather than, the, you know, brush with cups and then see your dentist twice a year, I, th I think you're starting to see in that before model of medicine being more personalized to like, okay, for you, you only need to come in like one, you know, so here's the deal, Richard, you only probably need to go to the dentist once a year at most. Your wife probably should be seen four times a year. And yet we tend to do this, this one size fits all treatment where everybody comes in twice a year. Well, you know, that's the other thing in my practice. I started to like personalize I really need to see you every three months. But you know what? You're doing great, Richard. I, I don't need to see you for a year. But when you come in next year, I'm going to ask you if you've, are you taking any new medications? Have you changed your diet? I'm going to start looking at those risk factors, just a review of those so that if there's some change there, I know about it. Because maybe next year, let's say you develop an allergy to, to the dog that's living in your house, and now you're taking this antihistamine, it's drying your mouth out. And I take a look at your mouth and go, ooh, you know what? We better start cleaning your teeth twice a year because I just want to keep you in a in a healthy zone. The other yeah. the other thing topic that you know when you're talking about inflammation, the other topic we haven't really talked about here today, and I can't remember if we did on the last podcast, is the the this connection between inflammation in the mouth and systemic disease in the rest of the body. And we're starting to make a lot of connections on the pathways, and particularly with gum disease. And I think most patients have probably heard this on, most people have you know, either heard this on the news or they've seen it on you know, one of the tele morning television programs. But we've made a pretty strong connection between um, inflammation of the gum tissue and the microbes that cause that, that drive that disease. And then inflammation of the blood vessels in the rest of the body, which so now we're talking about in the brain, we're talking about um, bleeding episodes in the, you know, in the capillaries and small arteries there, and we're talking about strokes. In the heart, we're talking about heart attacks. And a number, a number of those bacteria, peridol pathogenic bacteria specifically, we've identified that play a role in heart attacks and strokes. And actually, one of them is act, has been demonstrated, I think the paper was published two years ago, that it's actually causative in heart attacks and strokes. So you, so you really want to have a healthy mouth if you want to live a long time and be healthy. And you know, have a healthy heart and healthy brain. Uh, you want to make sure you got a healthy mouth. I can't. I, I tell audiences this as well. It's like I can't conceive now that if you've got a really unhealthy mouth, you can't have a healthy body, and vice versa, right? I mean, it's like it's true. It, it's not possible to have a healthy body if you've got a really a lot of disease in your mouth, because the mouth is connect. The mouth is part of the body. It is connected. One of the other things we've identified in the last three years is starting to look at, well, what other bacteria and microbes are present in those conditions, the heart attacks and the strokes. And interestingly enough, a number of the bacteria that we've traditionally implicated with tooth decay, we're finding in shocking numbers um, in, in, in those clots and the heart attacks and in the microbleeds in the brain. So um, again, you can't have a mouthful of decay and have a healthy body. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, the best thing you can do to protect your arteries and protect your your heart and rest of your body is, is make sure you're taking a good good care of your teeth and your gums. Have you thought, or have you, is it even possible to have um, a, a different protocol for people, you know, patients with diabetes or 
previous heart conditions or if they're high risk for heart conditions? I mean, is there anything you can yeah. do as a dentist to uh, help them? Yeah, I mean, again, so typically we associate that with gum disease, but, and the studies are pretty clear too. I mean, the best thing that we can do to prevent, you know, episodes like that is to have them have their teeth cleaned, their roots cleaned like four times a year. So yeah, that's, that's the best thing that we could do. And actively treat, if they have any bleeding sites in their gum, actively treat those sites to reduce them. And if they have a lot of tooth decay, actively treat that as well and help them, again, identify what's causing their disease and see if they can't um, mitigate those risk factors. One of the challenges that we have in both gum disease and cavities is that there is a component of genetics involved. And like I said, I said earlier, I can't change your DNA. So, but we know that you may be at greater risk for either cavities or gum disease because of you know genet your genetic makeup, and we can't necessarily measure that just yet. We have a couple of genes we can test for. Uh, in gum disease, but we really don't have any genes that we are actively testing for yet in terms of your risk for cavities. But so that's a, but that's the future. I mean, so what I what I can tell you is I can't change your DNA, but I can help you understand how much more susceptible you are, so that those acidic episodes in terms of tooth decay, those acidic episodes we need to minimize and we need to have you at least be aware of them, so that maybe you can change your lifestyle a bit to address that to just protect yourself as much as. You Use oral health okay. that, are, that are protective. Yeah. All right, Kim. Well, this is good. Um, we're out of time now, but it's been a great call. What? How can people get your uh, mouthwashes and toothpaste and all that? Where can they go to find out more and to get that stuff too? So we have a we have a great website. It's you know carryfree.com. C A R I F R E E dot com. And so we have a lot of information, like educational material, on there. We're really an educational company that provides materials, you know, healthcare products. Um, but so there's on that website, it's information rich in terms of being able to help identify if you have this problem and then what kind of approach, what kind of uh, oral healthcare products would be best for you to help, you know, again, minimize your risk. So they can get that from the Carry Free website. Um, we're also, our products are also available on Amazon. So yeah, well, tell me, tell me two levels, someone that is listened and they just want to like, you know, try stuff and go in at a low level, what would they do or what would they buy specifically? And then someone that feels like, all right, I want to go all out and help myself. What do I buy then? What are so, those two things uh, so I would, you know, if you were just, you know, low level and you just want to try a new product and see if it makes your mouth feel better. Um, I would try just our gel, either our 1100, you know, our CTX3 gel or rinse. So our three gel uh, rinse or our gel or rinse. And if you if you were had more, if you had a few cavities and you're more interested in that, I'd certainly would talk to your dentist, you know, and your hygienist, your professionals about that. But you could get our products um, also on the Carry Free website, and you probably would want to go to like the treatment rinse. But again, I'd, I'd really encourage anybody that has some disease to see their dentist or, and talk to their hygienist about it and talk about, you know, they can certainly ask questions about the Perry Free products. But I would want to put a person like that on a 5,000 part per million gel, and that's a prescription only in the United States. And then the treatment rinse is more, has some antimicrobial activity. Um, and again, I, they can order that direct uh, on the Carry Free website, but um, Again, really love to see them be under the supervision of a, of a dental professional while they're working. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, Kim, thanks for, thanks for coming back. It's been another hey, great call. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, I enjoy talking to you, and I hope everybody has a great day. 
You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.